0: Hello everyone, welcome back. Well members I guess, welcome back to Salem Witch Trials. Anyone on the podcast that's listening, thank you so much. Please rate the podcast, it takes two seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, so we're going to continue now where we left off. We tend to look at history through the lines of generations be it the founding fathers, the greatest generation, the baby boomers or Generation X, as one generation gives way to the next. There are inevitable gaps or outright conflicts. So it was with the second generation of Puritans in Massachusetts. As the children of the Great Migration came of age in the mid-17th century, their society underwent growing pains. Few were rebellious, and most wanted to continue the original project of building a city upon a hill. Still many lacked the zeal of their parents, and had failed to experience the personal conversion experience, wherein God let them know they were among the elect, the saints, destined for salvation in heaven. Lacking this, members of the second generation attended religious services, but did not join the covenant and become members of the church. For this they were denied the sacraments, notably baptism of their children, thereby risking eternal damnation for the third generation. The degree in which Puritan declension was real in a matter of scholarly debate. Although the proportion of colonists who were full church members did decrease throughout the second half of the 17th century, Many historians note that the Puritan commitment remained strong. Indeed, the pious population's extreme concerns, with a pure church and salvation of alike, suggested the strength of piety and the continuation of the New England way. Ministers and lay leaders, however, perceived the church to be in decline. And this became their overriding concern, of course. Faced with shrinking church membership and the threat of damnation for its youth, a religious synod developed the Halfway Covenant in 1662. This created a partial form of church membership for the adult children of the church members, who had not undergone spiritual conversion. As long as they agreed to live by their church's creed, these Halfway members were allowed to have their children baptised. The Halfway Covenant would long remain a, let's say divisive issue. and many congregations refused to adopt it, refused to re, um, adopt it or take it on. they just didn't want to support it full stop. Supporters though that liked it saw it as the best solution. Halfway membership would eventually lead to full membership. Opponents saw it as yet another sign of declension and refused to allow it, in their churches, where membership continued to decline. In the Bible Commonwealth, religious policy affected politics as well. Only property-holding men who were members of the church could be freemen, eligible to vote and hold office. Hence the halfway covenant widened suffrage and allowed men, whom some Puritans might consider unregenerate to weaken the rule of saints. There were other visible signs of change as well. The second generation had to face the fact that the city upon a hill, despite its success, had not influenced English religion or society. Indeed, the restoration of the monarchy, with Charles II in 1660, meant an end to Puritan revolution in England. And as New England's economy prospered, Growing wealth increased the threat of worldliness and excessive pride. Ministers soon began to preach, Jeremiah's, reminding people of their mission and their covenant with God, and telling them how far, far and far they had strayed from their path. Puritans believed that everything was a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure, and they saw the difficulties they faced as individuals as the colony as signs of God's displeasure. They needed to repent and return their faith, or face God's horrible wrath. Increase Mather was instrumental in developing the Jeremiah theme as a young minister, though many Massachusetts divines contributed to the genre. One of the first was the election sermon preached to the general court at the state of its session in 1663 by Salem's John Higginson, Five years later, William Stoughton preached what would become a famous Jeremiah for the election sermon. Stoughton's sermon, New England's true interest, and not to lie, suggested the spiritual conflict to come when he later served a chief justice of the court of Oyer and Termina. The spiritually weak were assaulted by deceivers. God turned his back to, to them and they became instruments of Satan. The brood of the Antichrist were already among the Puritans of Massachusetts, though Stoughton acknowledged that they were difficult to identify. Outwardly the pious, they had yielded to temptation. In this invisible world of spiritual conflict, the enemy remain hid all the while under some fair cloak, but they shall proceed until they be known. Satan and his minions had been unleashed by God to tempt Puritans into sin and degeneracy. Sermons such as Doubts painted a terrible picture of the horrible fate that awaited sinners and all of New England if they succumbed to temptation. In 1674, Increase Mather warned that the Lord should seem at this day to be numbering many of the rising generation for the sword as if to say, I will bring a sword to avenge the quarrel of the neglected covenant. The next year, Mather's warning seemed proven uncannily accurate, when King Philip's war broke out. The struggle between the native and English populations of New England was another symptom of the growing pains facing the region. Native Americans felt increasingly squeezed by the growing English population, and, well, they were pushed further into their lands and It was threatened. Their traditional lives, their whole process, were threatened. Fighting started in the summer of 1675 in southern New England and continued along the northern frontier until the spring of 1678. The war was one of the bloodiest and most destructive conflicts in American history. Thousands of Native Americans and hundreds of colonists were killed, injured or displaced and the fighting left much of the frontier zones of New England a blackened, smouldering ruin. The war broke native power in southern New England, with the majority of the population being killed, sold into slavery, fleeing to northern New England or New York. The reverse held to remain, where the Wabanaki had destroyed most English settlements. With the Treaty of Casco 1678, The English even agreed to pay annual tribute of peck of corn per family to the local sachems in recognition of native sovereignty. Beyond the suffering, the war was extremely expensive. The England colonial minister um, Edward Randolph estimated the English losses in houses and livestock at 150,000, and the colonies claimed it cost 100,000. A 100000 to wage the war. This was at the time when the total wealth for an average English settler's estate might only total £200 in real estate, livestock and personal possessions. While these figures may be on the high side, the magnitude of the financial loss is undisputable as its impact on the colonies. Colonial treasures would be depleted "'colonists would face high taxes for years to come. "'Although most of the fighting took place away from the Essex County, "'the war and the powerful effect on the region, "'not even people in Salem Town felt safe. "'They went so far as to build a half-mile-long palisade "'across the Salem Neck to defend against native attack. "'It cost more than £250 to build that palisade "'and strengthen other defences for the town.'" They also prayed for the safe return of the hundreds of members of Essex County Militia who had gone off to fight. Almost a third of all the Massachusetts soldiers who fought in the 1675-76 campaigns, 375 men, were drawn from Essex County. 52 of these men, 15%, died. These figures do not include the fighting that continued in Maine from 1676 to 1678. Largely undertaken by the Essex County troops. Essex soldiers were involved in some of the deadliest fighting in the war. 41 were killed with Captain Lanthrop at Bloody Brook in September 1675. The loss of the so-called Flower of Essex was a deep blow to the region. In June 1677, a largely Essex County contingent serving under Newbury's Captain Benjamin Swick was ambushed at Black Point. Maine, Sweat and approximately 50 men were killed. 22 of the dead and 5 of the wounded were from the county. To make matters worse, that same month, the Wabanaki seized more than 20 fishing catchers and killed or captured more than 100 local fishermen, each catch had a crew of 5 or 6. These were almost all of Salem and Marblehead vessels on July fifteenth. One of these catchers sailed into Marblehead Harbour. The ship had been captured by the Wabanaki, but its crew had been able to turn the tables. They reclaimed the ship and secured two of their former native captors, both the Sagamores, tribal chieftains, as prisoners upon arriving in Marblehead, the crew attempted to bring the Sagamos to the constable, but a mob gathered at the dockside and intervened. A group of women attacked the two bound natives, then with stones, billets of wood and what else they might pick up or find. They made an end of these people. We were kept at such distance that we could not see them till they were dead. And then we found them in there, with their heads off. Their heads were gone and their flesh and man are pulled from their bones. The gruesome violence demonstrates how intense were the pent-up fears and frustrations the war had produced, so well as the animosity felt toward the Native Americans. The sentiments against the Wabanaki would have been particularly high in Marblehead, the temporary home to many main war refugees. King Philip's war left a psychological scar on the entire region, and would not easily heal. In 1678, the last in the series of peace treaties were signed, finally ending the war, yet it was, at best, a cautious peace, with latent fears of a war with Native Americans, particularly in northern New England, where the natives continued to pose a substantial military threat. Cotton and Mather later observed that, when the time arrived that all hands were weary of war, a sort of peace was patched up, which left a body of, in well, Native Americans, not only with horrible murders, unavenged, but also in possession of no little part of the country, with circumstances which the English might not think very honourable. In King Philip's war and its terrible losses, Puritan ministers had their proof of spiritual decline and God's wrath. In 1679, the General Court called for a, a sin of a clergy and lay leaders to look into the colony's evils and how to readdress them. The greatest was a visible decay of godliness, profaneness, Sabbath-breaking, excessive pride, and covetousness of wealth. The synod called for a programme to support moral reformation of the entire colony. This required legislative action, as well as hard work, by ministers and their parishioners, The legislature responded by tightening up laws concerning taverns and focusing on education. There were renewed efforts to provide financial support to Harvard College, the training ground of Puritan ministers, and to require public education in communities with at least 500 souls. The reforming synod of um, 1697 was called after the death of the governor, John Leverett, who was replaced by Simon Bradstreet. Leverett, a political realist, had exerted a moderating influence in the strict religious orthodoxy expounded by the hardliners, including Bradstreet. The death and retirement of other leading moderates gave the upper hand of the conservatives. In the 1680s, the Massachusetts government started to take a tougher stance on moral reformation and most spiritual issues in general the Crown was paying more attention to its colony in New England and taking a hard line as well. In 1679, King Charles Charles II issued a Royal Charter for New Hampshire, restoring independence to a colony that had been under the control of Massachusetts since the 1640s. This was just the beginning of the Crown's efforts to curb the Bay Colony, which had been growing in territory and power for decades. New Hampshire's independence rekindled the hopes of the Mason family, which had taken off and on since the 1630s tried to assert the rights of the colony. Captain John Mason had been the key investor in the founding of the colony and had laid claims as well. His death in 1635 came just prior to his being granted proprietorship of the colony by the king. In addition to asserting the family's claim, John's grandson, Robert Tufton Mason, laid claim to all the land between the Merrimack River and the Norm Cog not for north, um, that's the river in Salem. He based this 1608 claim on a 1622 patent from these lands called Mariana in the patent, granted by the Council for New England to his grandfather. In truth... Captain Mason had never pursued this claim, nor had he complained when this land was included in Massachusetts Bay, Charter of 1629. Rather, he had focused his efforts on patents to lands north of the Merrimack. The result was a weak legal claim to the southern land, but it alarmed residents when, in September 1680, King Charles II ordered Massachusetts to produce evidence of its title to the disputed lands. In February 1682, the General Court replied, documenting its title and highlighting the fact that the colony had previously settled all claims with the Mason heirs. The Mason family would eventually drop their claims to land south of New Hampshire in Essex County, but this possibly would hang over landowners' heads for some years. Soon, they would have far more to worry about, however. In 1684, Charles II continued his campaign against the colony by formally revoking Massachusetts their charter. It would be hard to overstate the importance of 1629 charter to the colony, or the sense of loss this action brought. The original charter was a source of the colony's freedom and autonomy. Unlike with this joint-stock colonies such as the Virginia Company, the charter was held in Massachusetts, meaning that decisions affecting the colony were made on this side of the Atlantic. The government that ran the colony was known as a general court and consisted of an annually elected governor and a bicameral legislator. Each town elected its representatives to lower body. The House of Deputies, the corresponding to today's House of Representatives, let's say, and the freemen of the entire colony elected 18 members of the upper body, the House of Assistants, the foreigners of today's state. The members of the general court, In turn, elected the governor. Assistants served not only as the upper body of the legislature, but also as magistrates, for they were the judges in their county courts, and the governor and the assistants served the Supreme Court of the colony, hearing civil cases as well as high crimes. Under the Charter, Massachusetts had established a legal code that was similar to England, but had its own unique ways of doing things. Perhaps most significant, there were religious policies of the colony in which Puritism, Puritanism was um, the established religion, no other faith, not even the Church of England, it was allowed freedom of worship. Everyone had to attend Puritan religious services, and financial support of the minister was mandated by law. In many ways, the charter was the very foundation of the city upon a hill. Without the Charter and its protections, Massachusetts was in danger of becoming merely another crown colony, like New York or Jamaica. The death of Charles II in 1685 delayed the formation of a new government, but in the fall of 1685 Joseph Dudley was given a commission as president of the Council for New England, a provisional government in which the Massachusetts native headed a council appointed by the new King James II. Dudley, the son of the late governor Thomas Dudley, and brother of poet Anne Dudley Bradstreet, was the leader of the Massachusetts royalists. In December 1686, Sir Edmund Andros arrived in Boston and assumed authority as the governor of the Dominion of New England. The Dominion brought together in one supercolony, Massachusetts Bay, including Maine, Plymouth, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. In 1688... New York and East and West Jersey, the jerseys would later be combined into New Jersey, were all added as well. But they're now New Jersey, just so we're sure on that. The establishment of the Dominion triggered a serious spiritual and political crisis in Massachusetts. The Andros regime brought with it toleration for all Protestants. While the modern observer might see this as a good thing, Puritans believed it was a disaster for Massachusetts the Puritan church lost its special place in the colony. Governor Andros went as far as to take over Boston's South Church as a place of worship for Anglicans, and more Puritans believed defiled the church. Even Quakers and Baptists, once persecuted, were allowed to worship freely. In the minds of the Puritans, the revocation of the Charter and the rule of Andros were yet more ominous signs of God's displeasure with New England. The Puritans' covenant with God was under dire threat. The establishment of Dominion posed a political threat as well. Massachusetts lost its representative government, for the government and council were now appointed by the king. Gone was the elected general court. Leaders in Essex County would challenge these new restrictions, which struck at what they considered to be the rights of Englishmen, The first resistance arose soon after Dudley's provisional government assumed power. In the summer of um, 1686, a number of citizens in the towns of Ipswich and Rowley refused to observe the public fast called for by Dudley. And this, well, the council, as a blessing for new government, Dudley dispatched Salem magistrates Bartholomew Jenney to bring the offenders to justice. Lieutenant John Gold, of neighbouring Totsfield, was arrested after he made made, um, treasonous comments in his company at the militia muster. Gold refused to accept the new government and pledged his company to support its overthrow. He managed to get off with a substantial fine and a bond guaranteeing his good behaviour. This was just a sign of things to come the next year, and of course much later, in the years leading up. To seventeen, seventy five. So what we're seeing here is the colony change, the laws and everything else are changing, um, we've already seen that obviously, big changes politics. Well, put po- the politics of the whole systems change right. There, are, along with the politics of the whole system that's changed, different people are now. Uh, intertwined with Massachusetts and it's sort of growing into something else. But also, as you can probably tell, this is what's going to bring in the witch trials eventually because they're having this spiritual crisis already. You know, it's already started that there's only one way, there shouldn't be another way, and anyone else who's worshipping in a different way, you know, that's against God's will and God sees it, and blah, blah, blah. But as you can tell, they've already been through quite a lot as a small area. Now expanding of course, but still it's a lot for them to go through. They've lost a lot as well. It doesn't seem to be getting any better for them, does it? But I guess we are going to see why we end up at the witch trials, which will be interesting. Thank you for listening to this historical reading. Um, Obviously many years ago now that this happened but still we are very much affected by the happenings of history let's be honest many blessings